Hello? Hello? John Alder here, Science Editor with the New Daily. Welcome to What Does That Mean? Science, health and the social fabric is our beat. This episode we talk about our son having a long-lost evil twin, AI technology that can predict violent attacks on women, and an Australian company's innovative bid to transform heart valve technology. But first... Surely one of the top ten of modern concerns is that artificial intelligence will become so powerful it will assume the throne of God. Well, it's happening. A New York quantum researcher, George de Villa Durendal, has created an algorithmic Jesus Christ, as Mr. Durendal explained in a blog post, and I quote, I present to you AI Jesus, an artificial intelligence of my invention created from the King James Bible and nothing else. Hmm. Perhaps it's the ye old thou shalt nots that has turned AI Jesus to the dark side because he's not as nice as the original ambassador of peace, love and forgiveness. It's early days, and perhaps AI Jesus will find his more benevolent side, but for the moment, the chap is preaching doomsday scenarios. It's more in the vibe of what he's saying than what we might call making clear sense, rather like Charlie Manson's apocalyptic poetry. For example... The spoil of the wicked shall be the same things that are in the midst of the sea, and the sea shall be the father of the devils. Hmm. Come on, dear boy. You can do better. There's an idea going back nearly four decades that the sun has a long-lost evil twin that now and then causes mass extinctions. A new Harvard paper is the latest to argue that our solar system started out as a binary system and the Harvard scientists think they know where their errant twin star may be. Further, they suggest the mysterious planet Nine might be involved. Dr. Brad Tucker is a research fellow from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, Mount Stromlo Observatory at the Australian National University. Hello, Brad. How's it going? It's going all right. Now, Brad, what do we know about this long lost twin? Look, I think we have to start like why people even think this. And that's because when we look at the nighttime sky, most stars are, are binary or even trinary or quadrates, so two or three or four stars. You know, even Alpha Centauri, if you look at the Southern Cross and the two bright stars near the Southern Cross, 
uh, Alpha Centauri being the brighter one, uh, that nearest star to us besides the sun, it's three stars essentially orbiting each other. So there's good grounds to say, hey, you know, is our, our star did have another companion? Some people said, hey, maybe Jupiter was a failed star. And then other papers like this, and as you said, others have said, well, maybe that based on some evidence of what's in our solar system, and more specifically, what's on the edge of our solar system, maybe there was another star, and that would have been about the right position, that started to or formed, and it eventually went away. Um, and so this idea is now kind of come back to life after disappearing for a while. So this, this star, the, the thing that it's charged with is through gravitational forces that it's uh, misdirected the course of uh, comets that have then come and crashed on Earth and, and wiped out life. That's, That's right. So some people thought, yeah, maybe there is this thing lurking gravitationally on the edge, right? So if you have a star, you have lots of gravity. And therefore, it could change what's going on. And, and if we look at our solar system, so we have, you know, the inner planets, and then we got Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and then we have that Pluto thing, which, different story, <laughs> but Pluto and Pluto's friends, what we call trans-Newtonian objects, so objects beyond the orbit of Neptune, there's this whole area we call the Kuiper Belt, full of these little things of little rocky bits. And even then further from that, much further, we think there's this Oort cloud, and the Oort cloud is this sphere or, or area where just like there's the asteroid belt in between Mars and Jupiter, this is an area where all these comets are formed. And so the so question this, this is, is a, this is a this is a theoretical area of, of ice particles, isn't it? And that's that's they end up sort of uh, ag uh, congregating and and, tu and turning into comets. But it's it's theoretical, right? That's right. So we have never seen the Oort clouds observed. Um, the question has always been, why do we get comets? Where do we come from? And not just like Halley's Comet. You know, every so often, just a few months ago, there was Comet Neowise in the northern sky. So these comets come in. So why do they come in? Where are they coming from? What are they made up? And given that these are essentially giant chunks of icy rock, it makes sense that they're further, especially beyond Pluto. So where do they come from? How do they originate? How are they created? And also, how are the other friends like Pluto, what we call the Kuiper Belt, which does have observational evidence that there is this body around Pluto, where did it come from and why are there so many out there? And it turns to, if you had another thing forming out there, just as you have planets forming around our sun, maybe it started to form or pull away things on the edge of the solar system mm -hmm. around this other potential twin. In other words, this, this errant twin star could be forming its, its own system. That's right. You know, and when we see planets around other stars, you know, think Star Wars uh, and Tatooine and, and planets with two sunrises. We know of lots of we know lots of those things that we know lots of what we call circumbinary planets, planets that orbit two stars. So it kind of makes sense that you could have stuff orbiting two stars. We, we just know that exists now. And we also think that if the stars are far enough apart and, you know, we're talking about a star that is a thousand times further the Earth is from the sun. So way past Pluto really on the edge of the solar system, um, that it would be far enough that you could have, it, it could collect or scoop up its own things. And there could be stuff that just orbits it or even orbits the outside of both stars. So it's a, an interesting problem that goes to the essence of how did our solar system form and why did it form the way it did? Yeah. So this, this if, if it doesn't exist, I'm guessing it would, it would actually be smaller, a smaller star? Uh, it would definitely be a, a small star. It, the, the calculations from this paper by uh, Avi Loeb and um, Frank Baird and his, their student um, suggest that it's, it's similar in size to the sun. 
Um, and now our sun is a small star, so this wouldn't be bigger than the sun. So it could be on order of the same size or a tad smaller. Um, so it wouldn't affect, you know, the, the bigger the star, the more gravity it has. So it wouldn't change things dramatically. Uh, but the other thing is people have searched. People have searched the edges or around our solar system, and we haven't seen anything. So if this thing was created, where did it go or where is it? I think one argument is that, as I understand it, is that remnants of it or traces of it exist in the Oort cloud, and that, uh, and therefore, it's it's been been somehow diminished. The other sort of exciting idea is that Planet Nine could, in fact, be involved. That Planet Nine could be in the thrall of this long lost star. That's right. So you know, when we go back to the idea of Planet Nine, it planted around. It's been around since the discovery of Pluto. In fact this idea of what's on the edge of our solar system. And then a few years ago, um, Batjen and Brown show that if you want to explain some of the orbits of these trans-Newtonian objects, these things like Pluto on the edges, and they have some peculiar orbits, that maybe there's another big planet anywhere between four and 10 times the mass of the Earth, so kind of a small Neptune. But this is two to 800 times the distance the Earth is from the sun. So again, way past Pluto. And, and if you remember, we were just saying that maybe this star, this twin is a thousand times the distance. So this would be towards the area where this other star could be. And this could make sense if there really is a planet nine and people are searching for either planet nine or just more dwarf planets out there, that this star would have either formed um, this planet or really pulled the planet out um, or something else that it would just would have disturbed the outside area and change things how they're there. So, you know, there, there's various bits of evidence that go in and say, okay, maybe. And I think it just goes back to this, this big question of what is in our solar system and how did it form? And then how does it compare to other solar systems? Hey, Brad, thanks very much. And we are definitely getting you on again soon. Thank thanks. you, sir. Take care. Excuse me, Robo, any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. About 25 years ago, I was assigned to wander King Street, Melbourne on, on a Friday night and basically look for trouble. At about 3 a.m., I saw a fight was about to happen between two men. I was with a photographer and told him to stand at a certain spot and wait. About 30 seconds later, he took a shocking picture of one fellow drawing back to punch the other. Front page. Very exciting. How did I know it was going to happen? It was a vibe more than anything, the overall jizz of the situation. Maybe I'd seen it too many times before. Now, researchers from the University of Wollongong are developing artificial intelligence software that will allow existing closed-circuit television cameras to automatically identify and predict violent incidents, be it a fight between two idiots or an attack on a woman. Dr. Johann Barthelemy is a senior lecturer at the university's Smart Infrastructure Facility and leader of this new project. Hello, Johann. Hi. Now, look, uh, this is a world first, as I understand it, but uh, will this be similar to other AI identification programs uh, increasingly used in uh, disease diagnosis, where, in this instance, 
uh, it's fed thousands of images of human behaviour and learns the clues that lead up to a fight or an attack. Well, because we are dealing with artificial intelligence, we need to train the intelligence. Okay, it's like a baby that needs to, to learn how to walk or how to speak. So how we do that is we show it a lot of examples and tell it what to look for into the images or the video. And once we've gone through a lot of examples with it, we just tell it, okay, go on your own now and try your, your expertise on this picture or this video and tell us what you think is going to happen. Then we can actually validate that um, output from the artificial intelligence and tell it how well or bad it, it did. Do you know how long that, that would be before you could before you could actually get this uh, perfected? So the, the first phase of this big project is actually a six-month pilot. And we hope that in six months' time, we'll get the AI that will be able to pick up um, 75% of the incident. On the other hand, we don't want the AI to work alone. We always want to keep the human in the loop. So every output made by the AI will be validated by a human operator. And from that feedback, the AI will keep improving its capabilities over time. Okay. So look, facial, facial recognition programs continue to be rolled out across Australia with some anxiety, disquiet, mainly about the human rights consequences and the muddy legal framework. But facial Facial recognition purportedly identifies who we are. This program will identify what we are about to do. Do you think people will feel more at ease with this program? So you are right. Um, facial recognition triggers a lot of anxiety in the public. And I just want to make it clear that our trademark at the University of Wollongong is to design privacy compliant algorithm. Uh, so we don't focus on who you are and we don't track anyone and we don't implement facial recognition. What we do is, as you mentioned, is to detect what you are doing. But as soon as you are leaving the field of view of the camera, then the AI will forget about you. We do not store any images of anyone and we do not transmit any images, just alerts to, to tell the operator to look for something on the video itself, well, himself. So you sort of say it, once the person leaves the field of view, nothing's, nothing's stored. All mm -hmm. right. This began, as I understand it, the idea of this came from looking for ways to improve uh, women's safety and women's sense of safety on public transport. Of course, one of the problems there, I think, is that there are cameras that, say, exist on trains and trams, and uh, everybody knows it. And yet, and yet people still act badly. People still perpetuate, say, you know, sly sexual assaults on women and violence on one another. It's, it's a kind of, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate aspect of human nature that even if you've got that, that technology in place that's meant to inhibit that behaviour, it still occurs. Yes, you're right. So we still have a lot of issues around uh, violence, despite the fact that we've got a large number of CCTV around us. But I think uh, it's because people feel like nobody is watching those CCTV. For instance, Transport for New South Wales has 10,000 CCTV cameras. So it's very hard to monitor those 10,000 video feeds in real time. Uh, and yeah, that's why people think it's not really, well, it does not really impact the, their safety at the moment. But if you could pair that system 
uh, with an AI that will react in real time and, and make an alert as soon as there is something wrong, then it will improve the safety. Okay, and I guess because you've got that human operator uh, re responding to these alerts, I guess that acts as a bit of a fail-safe uh, uh, against the algorithm making a mistake. Yeah, that's right. We really, really want to keep the people in the loop. We don't want the AI to, to drive the, the boat uh, alone. All right. Okay, well, well let's, uh, let's see how it works out. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Every year, about 10,000 Australians need heart valve replacement or repair surgery. This is required when a heart valve becomes stiffer and reduces the flow of blood or when a valve doesn't close completely. This uh, causes the blood to leak backwards across the valve. An Australian company, Anteris Technologies, has begun clinical trials of a new heart valve that the company says is more durable, more efficient, and will revolutionise the treatment of aortic stenosis, the condition where aortic valve narrows. Not only for patients will this occur, but for surgeons. All right, well, there's a bit to unpack here, and here to do the unpacking is Wayne Patterson, Managing Director, CEO of Anteris Technologies, and Professor Leon Neesling, Vice President, Cardiovascular Technologies of Anteris, Professor at the School of Surgery, at University of Western Australia, and the man who developed the new tissue technology. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, John. Good morning, John. Now, first of all, from what I've read, there are tissue valves on the market that can last up to 20 years. So what's your pitch, Wayne Patterson, for why we need a new one? Yeah, thanks, John. I think the important point here is to, to delineate the two kinds of valves that are available in the market. One is the surgical valve and one is the transcatheter valve or TAVAR. Surgical valves are uh, put in position by um, cracking open a patient's chest, uh, removing the stenotic valve, which is heavily calcified, uh, and sewing in a new valve. Could be tissue, could be mechanical, uh, made of many materials, uh, and then putting the patient back together, as it were. Procedure takes two to four hours on the table and about six weeks to recover. So that's, that's, that's open heart surgery. Correct. You, you go on bypass. It's an open heart procedure. It's quite uh, an intense procedure. And in fact, some patients are not eligible, uh, particularly the elderly. Tell us about the other procedure. So about seven or eight years ago, um, a procedure was developed for those particular patients in mind, the ones that had no other alternative, the ones that could not undergo an open heart procedure, which is to basically take that same or similar uh, aortic valve, put it onto a catheter, and rather than cracking your chest open, they would insert that catheter down into the femoral artery near your groin, drive it up through your body, around the aorta, and drop the valve into the top of the heart. Mm. Uh, that procedure can take anywhere between 45 minutes, a little bit more, and patients are pretty much off the table. These days, they are consciously sedated. They're not even uh, put under general anesthetic and can be out of the hospital the next day. So how do you take out the, the existing valve? It's just the same thing, is it? You up, up the catheter and you, you somehow... No, it's a little different in that regard. With the surgical uh, procedure, you obviously can cut out that uh, stenotic valve. With the TAVAR procedure, you're basically going to drop your valve in place and you're going to push the existing valve out of the way by means of a frame. Now, once that existing valve is pushed out of the way, the new valve opens up around that frame. Um, and this speaks to the question you asked. Uh, the surgical valves can last a little bit longer, 
Uh, some of them have lasted up beyond 20 years, but there are two things to consider when we talk about longevity or durability. One is how long the body or how long the valve lasts inside the body. Two is how long it maintains that function. So a valve could be in a body for 10 years. doesn't mean it's working like it should from day one. They start to decline their function fairly quickly, and there's a clinical impact to that. But with the TAVAR side of things, uh, we know that the valves in the TAVAR space degenerate quicker than the surgical valves, which is the number you were talking about. TAVAR valves can degenerate in anywhere between three and five years. Um, now, that's significant because it takes anywhere from 65 to 85 years for your first valve to deteriorate and can take three to five years for a replacement valve to deteriorate. Uh, that's important. When patients were first getting these valves who were in their 80s, probably the patient would die uh, of other causes before the valve would actually expire by the time they're 90. But the, the, These are patients who've taken the, the, catheter, the, the catheter innovation. Correct, yeah. So the patients who were originally in the mid-80s were getting these catheters. They're about $35,000 per procedure, so uh, it's not cheap. So they were, they were reserved for patients who had no alternative. These days, the valves are being moved into the younger patients. The average age of a patient now is about 73 who's getting a TAVAR. Soon it'll be even younger than that, 65. Now, that's because the FDA has approved the use of these products in younger patients last year. But what's important about that is the valve no longer needs to last five years. It needs to last 10, 15, or even more. The current TAVAR valves, which were certainly revolutionary when they came out, do represent all the technologies and cannot maintain their function uh, through that period or lifetime of the patient. So there is a need for a durable valve. Um, and we basically bring the market to the market two very key technologies. One is the adapt tissue treatment, which Prof will talk about soon. Yeah, well, I, I want to sort of get that sort of slow that down a little bit. First, first thing I was going to ask about, though, is that other valves have more than one piece. And this means more sutures to hold them together. But yours is actually a single piece design. Is the key to that that the new tissue technology that allows that to be the case? Yeah, you're spot on. It's the only valve that's made of a single piece of tissue. Uh, it's 3D. All the other valves are made of three pieces of tissue sewn into a frame. Now, a valve degenerates for a lot of reasons. One of them is mechanical wear and tear. So when you put a replacement valve in, it's sewn into the frame. Those three-piece tissue valves are not anatomically correct. Uh, they're not working like your native valve, and that's why you know a native valve takes 65 years to die and a replacement can die in five. The Duravar valve is having about 35% less mechanical wear and tear, less stress on those leaflets because of the single-piece design, much more natural. That's the first point. It's got a lot less sutures, like 600 versus 100 sutures in the frame. Each time you put a suture into one of those valves, it puts a hole in the tissue, of course, and the more holes you have, the weaker the valve. The other thing that degenerates valves rapidly is calcification, right? So you've got mechanical wear and tear, then you've got physical calcium buildup. Now, the initial uh, disease that we're treating, aortic stenosis, is simply the result, as you mentioned, narrowing of that valve. The valve narrows and the leaflets get heavy, um, thrombotic, and stop working, basically, because they build up calcium. So the disease is, is built around calcium. Tell us what the actual key is to that, to the anti-calcification, how, how that actually works. All right, why don't I, uh, I'm going to throw it to Prof because I'm doing all the talking and he's the genius that invented it. Well, um, John, the uh, ADAPT technology is a multifactorial sort of tissue engineering process where we focus on all the potential factors causing calcification. In all the other anti-calcification uh, protocols and methods, they focus on uh, one or two uh, factors causing calcification, and they don't uh, address 
all the uh, significant factors causing calcification. For instance, in our uh, process, um, we remove the animal DNA out of the tissue, uh, which is a very complex process. And the uh, DNA, animal DNA is a very, very important factor causing, uh, we know it from, from basic pathology, it is causing rejection, and rejection is an inflammatory reaction. Of course. So what, what, what kind of animal are we talking about? We're using uh, bovine cattle material. Uh, it is the bovine uh, pericardium, uh, the sac surrounding the heart, um, and we tissue engineer uh, that uh, material uh, to an extent where you have pure uh, native collagen Okay. without any of the factors. Uh, so you basically you remove the DNA from the, the pericardium, the sac around the heart. That, that's Is that's that, correct. Right. And so you're basically left with, with a, a pure collagen, which is a very flexible material. That That's one aspect. Um, another aspect that we do is we remove all the cells and cell remnants. So within the pericardium, you've got collagen strands, collagen fibrils nicely uh, interwoven. And then between these collagen strands, you get cells, uh, fibroblasts, uh, which are the uh, ground material to form uh, collagen. And we remove all the cells because those cells are animal cells and they also cause inflammation and calcification. So we take the cells out as well. And then we take out a few uh, biochemistry aspects uh, such as um, the um, polysaccharides uh, that we find in the material and that is um, very essential because they also cause calcification. So, so for, in lay terms, basically the sugars? Yeah, it is very specific uh, sugars that you find in animal material. We usually uh, take that out as part of the process. So, uh, how, long does the, how, long does the, how long does the process take? It sounds pretty complex. Yeah, to, to prepare the tissue and take it through the whole tissue engineering process, more or less uh, the, the full process before sterilization takes about uh, a week and a half. And then we sterilize the uh, tissue, which takes another few days. Um, and then, uh, so the whole process is basically uh, about 15 days. Wow. So basically what you end up with is a very clean platform that isn't going to be prone to calcification, and it also sounds like it's going to be uh, resistant to inflammation and infection. That's correct. All right, great. Yeah, John, if I could add it to, to simplify, there's a lot of science going on here. And From I this point, we got a bit sidetracked. The, the short version is this. According to market projections that I've seen, Heart valve replacement technology will be worth 10 billion US dollars within a couple of years. The big selling point that Wayne Patterson is bringing to that market is his claim that Anteris's new valve technology effectively achieves a functional cure for aortic stenosis. That is a big claim. On the other hand, Professor Needling's innovations could be a game changer by solving those long-standing immunological problems of calcification and inflammation. It's all up to those clinical trials.
We'll keep you posted. I have to answer that phone. Get him up! Look, if you have to shoot me, then you go ahead and you shoot me. But I have to answer this phone, all right? It's almost an old joke that smartphones have become the new security blanket for everybody. Well, now it's a mental health condition with a special name, nomophobia. Perhaps it should be nomophonia. It's not recognised as a diagnosis by the American Psychiatric Association, but give it time. Feelings of panic when a person is away from their smartphone could be connected to general feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. A new study of young people in Portugal suggests. But people who feel that way tend to be more anxious and obsessive-compulsive in their day-to-day lives than other people, the study also suggests. The research has found that the more participants use their smartphone each day, the more stress they reported feeling without their phone. A little more than half of the study participants were female. The study didn't find a link between gender and feelings of nomophobia. The research has also found that the higher participants scored on obsession compulsion, the more they feared being without their phone. Obsession compulsion was measured by asking participants to rate how much they felt they had to check and double check what you do. And similar questions. Senior editor Zona Black, hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm all right. I'm feeling a little insecure, even though I'm hanging onto my phone right now. But look, to my mind, there are two stories here. How people Um, with existing mental health issues, or at least vulnerabilities, make themselves sicker with phone use, and how otherwise healthy people nudge themselves towards an anxiety disorder. Is that is that your reading? Yeah, that would be my reading, John. And I guess because I'm not a scientist, all I can do is the highly scientific process of relating something to myself, also what my generation is wont to do. And from a personal point of view, I definitely see those two points that you've raised Um, I find myself, if I'm in more of an anxious mood, I'm more more prone to picking up my phone for no apparent reason and doing that classic scroll through. Um, Hmm. And I find maybe when I'm feeling a little more level-headed, I do feel calmer and, like, I will often say, I don't know where my phone is and it turns out it's been in another room for several hours. So I reckon these researchers might be onto something there. I wonder, though, especially with... With COVID, if we if we get mixed up between anxiety and boredom, mm. so we reach for it then, I'm horrified when Sunday comes around, I think it's a Sunday, and a little message comes up on my phone that says oh, yeah. that my, use, my usage is up 20% the, and I was the on... The Sunday judgment. Two hours a day or something. Mm. Oh, oh, mine's three hours and 15 minutes, I think. And I'm just like, phone, I am your owner and I do not need this judgment on a Sunday. I can't even remember where those two, I can't remember having those two hours. That's the horrible bit. Yeah, I think they make it up sometimes just to punish you. Okay. What's interesting about this study is particularly you note that um, it was more related to social media use. So maybe when we're looking also at COVID time, that classic FOMO, that fear of missing out that is really prevalent in such young people and that's why we do have that, that want and that need to keep up with everything 
that's almost probably amplified in in isolation because all the stuff that you could possibly be missing out on is happening on social media. Don't you have a friend who's gone to pieces over this situation who can give some kind of insight onto how horrible it might be? Yeah, so I do have a friend of mine who um, when you flagged that you wanted to discuss this today, I reached out to and I had a chat to her and she very openly um, talks about her struggles with anxiety and depression and she's been a Beyond Blue ambassador and she's overcome all of those all of those struggles and she's now a healthy, functioning person 30% of the time. But she found herself really struggling with that phone addiction to the point where she downloaded an app that records how many times you pick up your phone and activate it a day. And I, she couldn't remember what the results were because it was a couple of years ago when she was in quite quite a bad state. But it was in the several hundreds. And right. I was like, well, what, what were you picking your phone up for? And she was like, to just check, just in case, to just check. And that really goes back to that obsessive compulsive, I guess, um, really raw feeling of I just need to double check. I just need to know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of myself. I'm not sure of what I've just read perhaps. I need to check. On the one hand, I feel I should apologise to you, Frank. So I use the phrase "go to pieces," which probably is you not should. very sensitive. You're making fun of people with with illnesses, John. On the other hand, <laughs> she was proactive. Well, we're not. She went and found an app. She downloaded it. She sort of took the matter in hand, and uh, and then she thought, okay, I really need to see what's going on here. So, as far as I'm concerned, she's got it together much better than I do, and possibly you. Mm, well. She doesn't have as good of puns as you do, John, but I do believe this was after a family and friend intervention that the app was maybe potentially even forcibly downloaded with the thumbprint held to the uh, little sensor there to unlock. An intervention. Mm. Well, I guess that's it. It's very, uh, I don't know what it is at the moment. I mean, it's, 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 I guess we're all just reaching for something and I guess maybe the phone's better than the bottle. I don't know. Maybe it is. I think it's just be kind to yourself, but it's also, I think, just be mindful of what you're doing. When you do pick up your phone and you find yourself scrolling and you go, hang on, what have I been looking at for the past 30 seconds? Yeah, maybe that's time to just do a little mental check-in and it's like, what was I actually searching for in terms of fulfilment when I picked up my phone? Was I searching for information? Was I bored? Did I want connection with someone? And maybe that's the way to tackle it. All right. Thank you, Sona Black. (laughs) Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. And now, from the world of money, our finance editor, Ewan Black, has just climbed out of his Rolls Royce to talk about the skyrocketing household savings ratio and the paradox of thrift. Hello, Ewan. Hello, John. Thanks for that lovely introduction. No problem. We're officially in a recession now. So I've got to make someone feel better. Some analysts are betting on a full-blown depression. And the Mm. personal piggy banks of Australia are apparently better fed than ever. What's going on? Yeah, well, I guess um, no Australian really needs the uh, the official statistics to tell them that we're in a recession. And, uh, yeah, people are saving saving lots of money because they are perhaps they're worried about the future for good reason. And also there's, there's not many things to spend on right now, John. We're, we're stuck in our homes and it's a pretty tr- 
tricky finding things to spend money on. When when you say that, you mean going out to dinner and 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 fuel for the motorboat and things like that. Yes, things like that. I mean, spending on services in in the June quarter, which is uh, what this latest uh, round of data was referring to, fell by seventeen point six percent. And yeah, and we, when we talk about services, we're talking about yeah travel, which is down massively, transport. Uh, getting your hair cut, the barbers, getting a you know a, a masseuse, all these kind of things. Um, so that that was there was there was few opportunities in, in that realm to spend money, I guess. Now I, we were talking about this. The ABS figures showing household disposable income actually increased over the June quarter. I know it's quite a shock to hear that, isn't it? Uh, in the the greatest kind of economic crisis in in living memory. Um, it's, it's, it's all to do with what the government's been doing. Basically, the amount of money that government has paid in, into our into various bank accounts, the amount that government has pumped into the economy is, has exceeded the, the to- total loss in household income so far. Yeah, and, and the big part of that is, is JobKeeper. Which, which I think you described as, a, as essentially a pay rise for about 900,000 uh, people. Yeah, so that was because... Um, when they designed the scheme, it was all about getting money out into the economy as, as fast as possible, providing confidence, you know, uh, putting a floor under the economy, basically. basically. And uh, in their kind of haste to de- de- design the scheme, the government decided to pay part-time and full-time workers the same amount of money. So that meant, you know, lots of kind of teenage, or I don't know who they were, but part-timers who, who had who had been uh, with, the, with the company for at least a year, they, they received the... A pay rise on the scheme. They got fifteen hundred dollars a fortnight, no matter what they were earning before. So it's uh, it has actually boosted the income, and that's given people a fair bit of money to spend in, in shops and uh, across the economy. So, despite the the sort of doom and gloom projections of of a, of a depression, which which could happen over overall, though the thinking is because of that intervention, um, even even if we sink further, it won't be. For a particularly long time, or putting it another way, that the economy will recover faster than we've been otherwise um, led to believe. What's your take on that? I think I can understand the argument, and it's been put to me by a few economists. But I'm a bit more of a pessimist, unfortunately, John, and I think um, that it's going to take us years to to get out from this, unfortunately. And I guess we won't know how long until. Uh, the JobKeeper supports cut start being scaled back at the end of this this month, at the end of September, and then then we'll see how many of those jobs are coming back for good and how many are gone. Because once you you know the classic line about unemployment is it goes um, up the escalator and down the stairs. Um, you know once these jobs go and spending starts collapsing, it, it takes a long time to to build. Uh, but I think what we do know, you know, the government's tried to the government is supporting us through this and. Um, it's it, it's obvious now. It's 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 undeniable that they're going to announce some big spending packages in in their budget in in well, it's about five five six weeks time now. So yeah, we just got to hope they they choose the right policies. I guess. On the one hand, I'm thinking, gosh, the government should uh, give us lots of money all the time, and our our bank accounts can can sort of swell up, and we can be all very happy that we've got a bit of money in the bank. But uh, it doesn't actually it's not actually doing the work the government wanted is it tell us about the paradox of thrift yeah this is it's kind of an age-old idea whereby during tough times it makes sense for the individual and the family to to batten down the hatches and to 
to um, you know, squirrel away some some cash to, to keep him through the, the bad times. But the economy is built on consumer spending. Um, it makes up 60% of the overall economy. So when people stop spending in shops and uh, in restaurants and, and what have you, that's less money for businesses. That means there's less jobs to go around. And then you get into this recessionary vicious cycle where weak spending fuel feeds into weaker profits, which feeds into weak, uh, more job losses and therefore weaker spending and, and so on. So it's the paradox of thrift is this idea that Yep, saving money is great for the individual, but it's it's bad for the rest of us. The other thing is there's a little bit of a panic uh, going on, maybe panics putting it too strongly, that um, there'll be a continued drop in the number of babies born in Australia, and perhaps that will accelerate because in Australian households because of concern that people can't afford to have a baby. Mm. Um, and... One thing that we, we have relied on, although we have this sort of bizarre, bifurcated conversation about it, and that's immigration. If we really want to get the economy going again, um, bringing more people in uh, mm. it, it, you know, would be expected to do it. I mean, that's basically how, partly how we got over the Second World War, wasn't it? We just brought in the Italians, God love them. Yeah. Um, but, yes. po but politically... There's this there's this bizarre thing that's happened where uh, we've benefited from that in the past, but now politically there's sort of a, a, a hole that's been dug uh, mm. by talking it down because, you know, all tied up with who is an Australian and who needs to be looked after first and all that sort of stuff. Any any inkling, though, that uh, a softening might be happening towards towards immigration and it being seen as a lifeline uh, out, of, out of the recession? I think... There will have to be a softening. It's um, even, I mean, this recession has been called the coronavirus recession, but that's, um, that's government spin, really. The, the economy was on its way towards recession before this crisis. And um, there was even talk last year, a different world now, but last year, uh, talk of a per capita recession, which is when, you know, the, the economy is shrinking on the uh, per head. And the only reason it's not shrinking is because of strong population growth. And the business lobby groups, they all know this. Government knows this. And so you'll, you'll hear a lot from business lobby groups in coming weeks coming up with different plans to safely bring over, you know, uh, I don't know, construction workers or perhaps not so construction workers. But they'll, they'll target specific areas and, and they'll come up with specific plans um, to, to bring uh, skilled migrants across to boost the economy because we need it. Uh, population growth has been a, the massive driver of the economy over the, over the past couple of decades. So I think there has to be a softening, and I think I think there will be next year. And look, hey, if, if Trump gets if, if Trump gets back in again, um, we might see a whole bunch of uh, Americans deciding uh, they they need a new place <laughs> to live. Essentially, yeah. That's, who knows what's going to happen there, right? All right. Good talking to you, Ewan. Talk to you again soon. Cheers, John. Remember me when I am gone away gone far away into the silent land when you can no more hold me by the hand nor I half turn to go yet turning stay from the poem remember by Christine Rossetti our way of saying farewell for now and remember to tune in next time